Well, hopefully you guys are having a great um, Easter weekend, one unlike you've ever had before, uh, more than just location. Um, so we have had a little bit of technical difficulties this morning, but I can always chalk that up to the fact that we're trying to do something that the world uh, wants to suppress. We're trying to share the, the gospel and to, uh, to really trust Jesus. And the day and age that we live in right now, uh, trusting Jesus uh, means something more. Scripture reads in a different way to me, and I'm very thankful for that. And so that being said, I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation in chapter 5 as we continue our study. Uh, no doubt that this is uh, Resurrection Sunday, uh, but as we're in the throne room in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I want to remind you that when, when John sees all that's taking place in heaven, and he sees Jesus, even in the beginning of the vision, in chapter 1, he sees him standing amidst this seven-branch candle stand, and then he uh, gets to say a word to each one of these churches in the seven-branch candle stand, these seven churches. And then we fast forward to chapter 4, and all of a sudden there's this catching up in the air that John experiences. He in my opinion, gets raptured and he's taken up. He's invited the Lord into the, the door. He's opened the door of his heart to the Lord and he's encouraging these churches to do the same. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we see John get pulled up into heaven to see what's going to take place after these things. And we talked about that at length last week in chapter 4. We saw the throne room. We saw the, the colors. We saw the light unapproachable. We saw the cherubim and the seven lampstands that were burning, uh, showing the presence of the Holy Spirit there. We saw the, the peace-filled sea, the stormless sea of glass before the throne. And then we see these creatures that are unlike anything we've ever seen. And yet, the very end of the chapter, the creatures are giving glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. So we, we've seen a description of the throne, and yet it says there that the creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down and they worshiped the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, and they cast their earthly crowns or their heavenly crowns, what they've earned by how they've conducted themselves as believers. They've cast those crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created and so in chapter 5 he's just continuing he's still in the throne room of God and as he's there it says there in verse 1 I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll excuse me, who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So there's this scroll. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we, we get our attention turned away from what's going on in there to what has taking, is taking place in the throne room. It's not just about all the pomp and circumstance, but there's actually legal things taking place. And there's this scroll that has seals on the outside. Now, the scroll is the title deed to the earth, and we're going to get there, but it says a title deed, even in our language, is a legal deed or a document that constitutes evidence of a right 
especially to ownership of property. So you own a house or a boat or a motorcycle or whatever it might be. Maybe it's just a piece of property somewhere, but you have a a piece of paper that signifies your right to that property. But on this particular title deed, there are seals on the outside that don't allow just anybody to open it. Not just everybody has the right to open this document, but the seals on this one are the requirements to redeem it if the owner cannot make payments or goes bankrupt, can't maintain it anymore. It's gone back to the bank, if you will. But in this case, we see this as the title deed of the earth. And so I want to turn with you to one of your favorite books, I'm sure, Leviticus and chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5. And many times I think that I read the Old Testament, and I know what it's there for, but while I'm reading it, uh, while all Scripture is inspired by God, not every Scripture is as inspiring as some others. So in chapter 25, verse 23, hidden in the law is this law about the redemption of property. Now, redeem, I have there for you on the screen, to redeem something is to gain it or to regain possession of it in exchange for payment. And so in this case, this is the law of redemption of property. Now in the nation of Israel, property was not to be owned perpetually by somebody other than the tribe it was originally given to in the book of Joshua. And so this land was given to them by God. It's God's land. God gives it to them. And then in order to maintain the ownership, there's this law, verse 23 of chapter 25. It says, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is whose? He says, it's mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your, of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. Now, he gives examples. If one of your brethren becomes poor, and has sold some of his possession. And if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. And if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold it, that he may return it, excuse me, return to his possession. But if he's not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall be released, and it shall return to his possession. And so the, 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 the tribal possession, the land, would actually always revert back to, eventually, the original owner. And the idea was that it would remain a piece of property of Israel, and that land was actually still God's. So, not just anyone can redeem property. It has to be a kinsman, someone related to the owner. But it also has to be somebody with enough money to pay for what is owed on the land. Interesting, because if you turn with me to Jeremiah, in chapter 32, we get another picture of this kinsman redeemer and uh, redeeming land. I'm going to turn to Jeremiah, chapter 32. If you go too far to the left, you're in Isaiah. 
So turn back to the right. But in Jeremiah chapter 32, here's what happened. The nation of Israel had rebelled against God. They had disobeyed his law. They were serving other gods and idols. And because of that, the Lord told them, I'm getting ready to force you to Sabbath. I'm going to take you into a land and make you captive to Babylon. I'm going to let Babylon conquer you so that you will come back to me. But in Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet, is telling his nation this. And because he's telling his nation, you're going to essentially go into bondage and slavery to Babylon, and God's going to be the one to put you in bondage to Babylon. Um, Jeremiah was not a popular prophet. And so in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, for then the king of Babylon's army was besieged against Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So this is a doomsday prophecy. Uh, You're getting taken out of the land that God gave to your forefathers, and it's your fault, but it's of the Lord. Well, that can't be of the Lord. Why would God ever take me someplace that I don't want to go or I don't believe is his will? But this is what God said he's going to do. So in verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is an Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. So he's the nearest relative who has the right to buy this property. So then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Why in the world would Jeremiah want to buy a piece of property in a nation that he's getting ready to be taken out of, exiled from? God says, your relative is going to come to you and say, hey, buy my property, which by the way is the worst proposition ever to sell land right before you won't be able to use it. I'm going to hoard my money and not buy the property, so I've got money in the land that I'm going to. But Jeremiah waits, and then his relative comes to him and says, buy my property. And at this point, God tells him, I'm going to send your relative to you to sell the property, right? So you'd think Jeremiah, being a prophet, would go, oh, okay. And then he'd go see his... But instead, he waits on the Lord. He waits for it to come to pass. You know, sometimes we have visions where like, I don't know if this is me or if this is the Lord. When his relative actually does come and say, buy my land... Then Jeremiah says to himself, this must be of the Lord. It's not a coincidence. And so he offers him the land, 
And then it says in the end of verse 8, Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was an Anathoth. I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver, and I signed the deed, and I sealed it. I took witnesses, and I weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So he's bought it, he's signed for it, and it has been sealed. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. So it's now his property, officially. But he also knows that they're getting ready to be taken out of the land. So then Jeremiah charged, verse 13, Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed, which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land." So what he's saying is, I have been told by the Lord we're going to be taken out. But the good news is that we're going to get to go back. Sound familiar? Jesus says, I'm, I'm, he, he essentially bought us, signed, sealed, and delivered us, not for now, but for when he's going to return and redeem the earth and his property, us. And so here he is telling them, we're going to come back to the land, but you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to trust me on this one. This is the word of the Lord. And so Jeremiah is a relative redeeming property. But who holds the title deed to our earth now? Who holds the title deed? Who owns the earth? Psalmists have written that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? And yet we have this problem because the right to manage and master the, the world was given to who? Us. And in Genesis chapter 3, uh, and, and before then, we see God create in chapter 1. We see him create man. We see him give man something to do in the land or in the world. And yet, the one thing they were told not to do was partake of the one tree in the garden. But the title deed to the earth was forfeited. Man forfeited it in Genesis chapter 3. See, the back history to that is that before we existed, there were angels. There was God, and he created everything. He created even the angels. Satan was an anointed cherub, as we studied in chapter 4 last week. His name's Lucifer. Now we call him Satan because Satan means against God. Lucifer means luminous one. And though we wouldn't name our children that now because it's got that, such that negative connotation, Lucifer rebelled against God's authority. And if you want to look at that in the history behind it, look at Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. But in those passages, Satan said, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. Satan believes that God is a glory hog. 
So the question, the rebellion that Satan has led ever since then is the question that we struggle with today, but as believers, we know better. But the world is saying, is God really good or is he just a big powerful bully that forces us to worship him and then if we don't, he punishes us? So Adam and Eve were tempted with that same thought. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree, Eve, because if you do, he knows you'll become like him. So Adam and Eve fell for it. Eve was deceived. Uh, Adam was not. Adam knew better. He had been given the instructions. And yet Adam and Eve obeyed Satan instead of God. Now you think, what is the big difference between disobeying and obeying? Well, I'm telling you, we're still living out the fruit of their disobedience. Because of them, there is disease, sickness, plague, wars, murders, striving. We got to work to plow even our gardens right now in the spring because guess what's going to grow faster than our, our plants, our fruitful plants? Weeds. That's part of the curse from Genesis 3. And so Adam and Eve obeyed Satan instead of God. And I will submit to you that you give, you personally give lordship ownership to whoever you follow the leadership of. To whoever you obey, you are giving the rights of ownership and leadership. And so what I want to point out is that this is God's, this was God's world that was created, and he said it was what? Good. Everything that was in it. He created man, said it was good, and yet now the world is under the ownership and the leadership of who? Satan. Paul called Satan the God of this world. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. And so we are under the authority right now of not God in the world, but actually Satan. And yet the question that we come to is the question that we're coming to here in chapter 5, verse 1. Back to the passage, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Chapter, or verse 2 says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And it says there, No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So verse 4 says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So the question, the big question, who is worthy? Who is able to open this scroll? Who has the merit? Who's qualified? And then after the question, deafening silence. No crickets, no sounds, just awkward pause. No one answered in heaven. No one answered on earth. No one answered under the earth. Well, why does this matter? Well, you and I know that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Just last night, I was speaking with someone about death, and we were talking about how at every funeral, there's people that are saying, boy, it was too soon. And you can go from very, very young to very, very old, but every time it's like, I just wish I had more time with them. 
That's too soon for me. I wasn't ready for that. But the reality is, none of us are ever ready to lose a loved one. And we shouldn't be because we were not made to die. We were never made to die. But because of sin, because of questioning God, because of not trusting him, because of Adam and Eve and the sin that we inherited from them as our mother and father, we have this intrinsic thing that happens that 100% of people will die. And for the first time in our country, I believe, we're recognizing that we're not isolated from death. We're not isolated from plague. We're not isolated from what could happen. And because of the pandemic that's going on right now, a lot of people that have never considered the fact that they could die are all of a sudden thinking about what's going on after this. And I would submit to you that if there's one good thing that can come from this, it would be that. That people are actually questioning what after this? What happens if? And not just to prepare so that their families can live on after them, but to prepare for their own eternity. What does that mean? So I want you to turn with me because in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes about groaning. And if there's anything going on right now, I believe that not only is creation groaning now, but people are. Now, it might be because of what you're tired of hearing on the news. It might be because of the awkward conversations you're having with people that, that don't want to be close to you or, or are trying to be careful, and that, that's fine. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. Now, think about that in the context of Romans 5. Who's worthy to open the scroll? And he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, creation has expectations. The earnest creation, excuse me, expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And maybe you wouldn't say this, but if you lived close to the San Andreas Fault, <laughs> that the, the, even the plates of the earth are groaning and beating against each other and causing tremors and, and birth pangs to what the world is. It's, it's being held together by God, and yet it's still groaning. It's making noises. But it's, it's been subjected to futility, which means vanity or emptiness, until now. Verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Think about this. Resurrection Sunday and our bodies, I don't know about yours, but mine is wearing out. It's getting sore. 
you know, the weather was coming in yesterday and my toe, the ball of my toe, like it swelled up because of some sort of inconsistency. I probably smashed it at one point and now it's hurting again. But our bodies, our physical, our emotional, they're just, they're exhausted because of futility, because of vanity, because of work, because of gravity, because of the weather, whatever it is. But that being said, we also are eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body, that our bodies would actually be reclaimed ownership by God. For we were saved in this hope. We were saved in the hope that Jesus would redeem our bodies and make them what they're supposed to be, rather than being subjected to the consequences of sin. We were saved in this hope. Our hope doesn't disappoint because our hope, Romans 5 says, has been shed abroad on our hearts by the love of Jesus. Our hope is not in this life. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And so we await this redemption that God's not only going to do spiritually, he's redeemed us. We are all that we will ever be spiritually in Christ if we'll receive that. But he's going to redeem our bodies as well. And so since the fall, mankind has been under sin and its consequences. Why does God allow death? Why does God allow evil, pestilences, war, disease? Add to the list. And I would subject to you, he warned us about it. He, didn't, he did give us free will to make a choice, but here's the reality. We caused it. We caused it because we didn't listen. But creation itself groans. It's waiting for redemption. Earthquakes, floods, unrest, unstable atmosphere, even animals fighting against one another. But because of the brokenness of the world that we live in, because of the persecution that the people that John was leading, he's getting this message from heaven. He's in the throne room himself. And in Romans chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 5, he says in verse for because no one was worthy, or at least no one spoke up, he says, I wept much. And that phrase means uncontrollable, convulsive sobbing. He is broken. He is overwhelmed with sorrow that no one's worthy to redeem the earth. No one's worthy to open this title deed that was taken at Genesis and now is in the hands of Satan, no one's worthy to redeem it from the man who took it. Does this ever end is the question that John's struggling with. Will we ever see the kingdom of God in all of its glory? So he weeps. And I think that we should weep over that. But here's the good news. In verse 5, he goes on to say, but one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We just sang about him. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah.
He says, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. I need my next slide, boys. To loose its seals. So he says, do not weep. Now, this is a phrase that's also said, if you turn to the right, in chapter 21 and verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So he says, do not weep. One has prevailed. One has already won the battle. And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you remember the blessing over the 12 tribes in Genesis chapter 49, verse 9, there's a, a prophecy about Judah. There's a prophecy there about Judah being the lion's whelp. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14 also mentions Jesus being from the tribe of Judah. And then he says also the, the root of David. Let's turn there to Isaiah chapter 11. There is one who is worthy, the, the elder says. And he's spoken of in a prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 11. And I promise I will get there. Isaiah 11 in verse 1. It's a very famous passage. He says there in verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. Interesting, because most branches grow above the roots, and yet what it says is there will be a branch that shall grow out of the roots. So this is going to be someone who was before David. But then if you look in verse 10 of the same chapter of Isaiah, it says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So back in Revelation chapter 5, he says, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the root of David, Jesus, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals, seven of them. So I looked, and behold... So before we go look and behold, I want to point out that John has been in the throne room. He notices the throne. He notices the cherubim. He notices everything that is specifically in this. And if you're reading Leviticus, I want you to note that everything that's in this heavenly throne room is represented and a foreshadow of it can be found where they lay out the tabernacle and all the furnishings and the bread and the seven branch candle stand and the laver and, and the incense burning before the throne and the mercy seat. But it's what's on the throne that's the most important that John's getting ready to look at. And it seems like to me that he could see the throne room, he could see all those things, but the first thing he noticed wasn't Jesus. It was Jesus's glory that shines so brightly that he couldn't see where the glory was coming from. Have you ever looked into a light, or a, especially one of those new age xenon headlights when it's coming down the road? You can see the light, but you can't see the car coming. I think it's one of the most dangerous things. But in this case, the glory of God is so bright 
that you can't even see the one that it's shining from. It's like staring into the sun. Get it? S-O-N, not the S-U, sorry. So here we see John weeping. And since it's Resurrection Sunday, my mind was thinking about the resurrection. And there was one who weeped at the tomb. Turn with me to John chapter 20. This is the only gospel account that I could find that actually mentions weeping at the tomb. But in John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out. The other disciples were going to the tomb, so they both ran together. The other disciple outran Peter, came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he didn't go in. And Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw that the linen clothes lying there, cloths, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself. And the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, for as they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stood down, stooped down, and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was him. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, there was only one person that knew her name like that and said it like that. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. So as we go back to Revelation chapter 5, I just want to look at these parallels real quick. Because Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? The elder says to John, you've seen the throne, but why are you weeping? Do not weep. The thing that you thought was going to come to pass didn't. I get it. But there's something greater. There's a greater glory getting ready to reveal to him. So in chapter 5, verse 6, it says, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So John turns, he's been told, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He's He's worthy. He's going to open the scroll. So John is told by the elder, I want you to turn around and I want you to look behind you because the throne was behind him. But instead of seeing a lion, 
He just told him, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He turns around and he sees what? He sees a lamb. And the word there for lamb is not like a full-grown one. It's actually like a little lammy. If your kid's got one of those little lammies they cuddle with. It's, it's something cuddly and cute looking. And yet what it says is that it's a lamb as though it had been slain. What more pitiful picture can you get? What more humble beast can you think of than a lamb? Lambs cannot defend themselves. But he turns around, he sees a lamb. What's the lamb look like? It looks like it's been slain. Past tense. It's standing there. It looks like it has been slain. Past tense. It's got seven horns and seven eyes. Now, if I think of a lamb, I think of a a full-grown one. And if it's got horns, it's not called a lamb. It's called a ram. It's got those awesome horns. Not like the St. Louis lambs, but like the St. Louis rams. So the scarred lamb has seven horns. Lambs don't have horns. So it's an unusual lamb, to say the least. And it has seven eyes. Now, I believe that this is symbolic because a ram's horn is a symbol of strength. Eyes are a symbol of sight, vision. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. So I believe that this is a scarred lamb, and yet it has seven horns signifying perfect strength. And it has seven eyes symbolizing perfect sight. Now, I did a little Googling on this because I was thinking that lambs didn't see very well. Apparently, their vision is actually very good. So a lamb has good sight to start with. You add five more eyes. I mean, that's just me thinking out loud, but it could see very well. And Jesus is the word of God, and he sees us as we are, not we, as we portray ourselves to be. He doesn't look on the outside of the man. He actually looks inside to the heart. And so this lamb is scarred. And I think that's interesting because back there in John chapter 20, there's a man by the name of Thomas who said, unless I see his scars, unless I see the hole in his side, I'm not going to believe that he rose from the dead. And yet in John chapter 20, in verse 24, it says, Thomas called the twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen him. But if you go down further, it says eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus um, came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace be to you. And he said to Thomas, Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, blessed are you because you have seen me and you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, in the throne room, apparently Jesus, who was glorified and with the disciples, had these scars still, and yet what it seems like to me from this vision is that when we see Jesus, he will still bear the same scars for eternity, reminding us constantly 
not of his death, but of, at the lengths that he would go to to love us. They're the evidence that shows that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe will not perish, but they'll instead have everlasting life. Now that verse rings a chord to me because I heard this week somebody say this, and I loved it. He said, people are starting to think about the fact that we are perishable. Now, when I hear the word perishable, I think of food. I think of stuff that's got a born-on date. I think of the manufacture date or the date that they shipped it out from being baked fresh. But do you know that you and I actually have a perishable date? God only knows it, but the reality is we are perishable. But whoever believes will not perish, but instead last forever. And so he says, he, he looks behind him, he sees this lamb, and the lamb takes the scroll and he redeems it. He's able to open it. He, he's able to fulfill all the terms and conditions that are the seven seals. And once he does, he's able to open it. He legally has the right to open it and buy the field. He paid the price. Him being scarred, him being dead and then risen again, gives him the right. He paid for our redemption. He's buying us back. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says, um, I turn there so I don't misquote it. There's a short parable. It's one verse. And it says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid there. And for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. And Jesus truly sold all that he had. He left heaven. He left fellowship, direct fellowship with his father. He took on human flesh and so much more. He forfeited his, his life as it was, became something frail and killable, perishable, and then he perished for us. He let evil men kill his body. No man kills Jesus. He lays down his life on purpose. And he sold all that he had so that he could buy the field for what was in the field. He redeems the world for what's in the world. Who's in the world? You and I. He paid the price. And yet, wow. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 19, if you go and read it, it actually says that we need to remember that we were not redeemed with corruptible things. Jeremiah was redeeming a piece of property with 17 shekels of silver, but we were not bought back with corruptible things like gold or silver that perished, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb that was without blemish or spot. We were redeemed with, it, with God himself taking on human flesh. And so my question for you as we read this this morning is have you been redeemed? Jesus redeemed the world. And, and think about it this way. Let's go back and talk about redemption because the world is bankrupt. The one who bought it doesn't deserve to keep it. He's not paid the price to redeem it. It's, it's bankrupt because of sin and rebellion, and it's been tainted by the fall. Jesus paid the price to redeem the world, and now he holds the title deed. 
But guess what? Things haven't changed yet, have they? Sin still reigns. Brokenness still happens. Diseases are still spreading. Earthquakes. Jesus isn't back yet. He promised he would return. But I would submit to you that he purposefully hasn't taken full possession yet. You ever sell a house and you sign the papers, but there's a date you set to claim the house? Well, Jesus has done everything to pay for it. He has the right to redeem it. And yet he hasn't evicted the world yet. He hasn't taken over possession, but he will. And it's coming. So what about you? We are born, whether you think this way or not, the Bible teaches that we are born morally and spiritually bankrupt. We are enslaved to sin. We've obeyed Satan instead of God. We are indebted and we don't have the ability to to redeem ourselves. You cannot work hard enough. You can't sweat enough. You can't get enough people to like you. You can't do enough good to outweigh your bad. It's impossible. Sin deserves and is judged by what? Death. If you sin, you will die. There's only one who's able to pay the price for our redemption, to buy us back from Satan's slavery. There's only one fit to open the seals of our heart. He's made the requirements. A title deed is a legal deed or document constituting evidence of a right especially to ownership of property. And my question as we close this morning is, have you handed him your title deed? He's already paid for the title deed, but he will not force you to let go of it. He will not force you to give over control. He's asking you. And so my question is, are you someone who has said your whole life, yeah, I'm Christ, but I'm going to do this thing. Yeah, I'm God's, but I'm going to trust this thing. Or are you really his? I was challenged with this this week. I'm living in a world just like you right now where everybody's telling me what to do. And so I am going to either make this person mad or that person mad. But the question is, uh, am I willing to obey the Lord rather than the fear of man, rather rather than my own flesh, rather than Satan himself? Have I handed him my title deed. And if I have, then I got nothing to worry about. He's paid for the property. That's me. He's going to maintain the property. He's going to provide. And he's going to take care of how it all ends up. My only duty is to obey and trust him. But he's already paid for the right of your redemption. Maybe you're somebody that hasn't handed over your title deed. You haven't handed over the right of ownership. And I would encourage you I I would say it's the best thing that you'll ever do. So if you haven't, I would encourage you highly. Do business with Jesus this morning. He paid it all. He paid for your sin. You don't have to live in shame anymore. You can be unashamed. You can be completely redeemed. My question is, are you willing? Are you willing to hand over your rights? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20 as I really close.
says this, 1 Corinthians 16, 6 verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that's how I'll leave you today. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And we have the receipt for that price, by the way. Jesus glorified, resurrected, alive, and we will see him in heaven. But until then, we trust him by faith. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for redeeming us. I thank you for buying us back. I thank you for paying the price. It came at a very high cost for you. Your father paid a very high cost. I don't know anybody that's willing to sacrifice their children for me, nor would I ask them. But you did it. You proved your love. And on the third day, when everybody showed up at the grave thinking it didn't work, the reboot didn't work, he died anyway, he didn't get to be the king of kings, he didn't get to be the Lord of lords, the Messiah died. They showed up thinking that it was game over and that they would have to continue looking for the Messiah. And yet when they showed up, they found an empty tomb and they found out that death did not stop your plan. Lord Jesus, we confess to you, we recognize that death does not stop your plans, that Satan is not able to defeat you, that no matter what man can do, no matter what virus can do, no matter what hardship we might be facing, no matter how we're standing financially, no matter what the government says, you are alive and you are the king and you are worthy to be praised. And the rest of chapter five says all of that. You are worthy. And so, Father, this morning we, we close by saying, Lord, we confess that you're worthy. And I just want to confess, I'm sorry for not treating you as if you're worthy of my praise, for holding back, for being my own manager rather than obeying you. Lord, help us to obey, man, to obey you rather than man. In Jesus' name, amen.